Alright, so uh, today we're going to dive back into our second message in our Moses series, which I've cleverly entitled this message series, Moses Part 1, which is just the version of part of Exodus 1 through chapter 16, moving out of Egypt, and so I've subtitled it very cleverly, Out of Egypt. That, that, that's, how I, that's how I roll when it comes to clever titles and all that sort of stuff. Um, basically, last week was an introduction message, and we covered verses 1 through 14 of Exodus, which is basically the explanation of how did we get from Joseph, right? Joseph, who is in charge of Egypt, his family is, is, has massive influence and favor and blessing. How did we get from there into a, an enslaved people and the awful situation of the beginning of the Exodus story. So we looked at what how the Bible said. We also looked at the archaeology and the, the, histor, the history and the, the historical documents that we have from that era. And we just saw how in sync history is with, with uh, what the Bible is claiming, which should not surprise us. Um, at the heart of this study has been a, a claim, a claim, a value, a cry that God still rescues. God rescued, but he still rescues, and he will rescue in the future. And so starting off this theme last week, we're talking about how God still rescues, and, and we were talking very generally how he rescues us from darkness and into light. And he rescues from dark situations into light situations. Today we're going to be a lot more niche when we talk about the rescuing work of God as we start to look at Moses as a baby, as a child in his earliest years. And, and what I want to focus on tonight when it comes to God rescuing is this. God still rescues us from whatever our upbringings may have been. God still rescues us from whatever our upbringings might have been into his most significant good and impact-filled futures if, if we trust Jesus and we follow him and courageously obey his leadings. Let me just say that again because that's right at the heart of this all today. God still rescues us from whatever our backgrounds whatever they may have been, into his most significant, good, and impact-filled futures if, if we trust, follow, and courageously obey Jesus' commands and teachings. All right, so I guess a simple way to, to say that would be is whatever your past, God has a good plan for your future and a great plan to get you from here to there. Uh, you had no say in what your family of upbringing was like. You, you didn't get any votes in that. Um, so you, you didn't get to decide how many parental figures were in your life, whether they were coming and going or whether there was one or whether there was 16. I, you didn't get any choice in say in, in all of that. You didn't get a say in how you were treated, whether you were treated evilly or were you, whether you were treated um, uh, graciously. or You didn't get a say in, in how that environment in your home was, whether it was a healthy environment or a toxic environment a critical environment or encouraging environment. You didn't get to choose whether you were raised in a, in a fiscally advantageous environment or a fiscally a challenging environment full of disadvantages due to lack of finances and resources. You didn't get to choose the spiritual upbringing climate of your home and, and how you were raised, whether it was a spiritually alive and, and encouraging place or whether it was um, very anti-Jesus and, and anti-God. You didn't get to choose a lot of your upbringing, but you experienced it. Here's three very powerful basic premises uh, when it comes to your life and, and processing those early years. Premise number one, God knew you before you were even born. God knew you before you, before you were even born, before the foundation of the world, he knew you. 
Secondly, God knew exactly what advantages and evil you would experience growing up. He knew exactly what advantages and evil you would experience growing up. And thirdly, although the evil was not God's ideal for your life, and I'm going to say that again, although the evil was not God's ideal for your life, he knew that it was going to be your path, and he has always had a plan. He has always had a plan to take you from your pain-filled past into your powerful future in Jesus. I'm just going to say that again. He has always had a plan to take you out of your pain-filled past into your powerful future in Jesus. He had a power, he's had a plan all along to lead you through your healings that you needed, the, the hurts that you, you'd experience into your, his ideal future for you if you will trust him. And if you will follow the, the path that he has set out for you, that he has a plan to get you from here to, to there, to there. Now that path is going to include things like forgiving Forgiving everyone of everything, which can be a hard thing to do, but it's also life-changingly good. It's life-changingly powerful. The God who knows everything knows the path that your heart needs to walk. And so the most heart-healing path for you, God writes down in His Word. He puts it in writing. He says, this is how I want you to live. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to forgive everyone of everything. And that's the path I want you to walk to go from here to there. Now, if you think about Moses, Moses did not have the ideal upbringing. And I think that surprises people because I think people assume, well, actually, Moses had a great upbringing because he was raised in the palace, and so he was super rich, and he had the best education ever. Are you listening to yourselves? Just because somebody has a lot of money and a great education doesn't mean that they're raised in the best environment ever. I mean, have you ever watched television? Right? Uh, there, there's there, Netflix or anything, right? Like, there, there's so many examples of, of, of people in that sort of advantages, but having awful home environments. How about, how about home environments that are loving, that are caring, that are, that are instructive and teaching and nurturing and, and, um, and all of that? Moses was not able to be raised by his godly family. He, he was not able to be raised by his godly family. Instead, he was raised, raised in a highly toxic pagan home. They worshipped the gods of Egypt. They worshipped the demons of Egypt. It was, it was the ultimate power-hungry home of Egypt, like a pharaoh's home. Like it was all about power. It was about money. It was about success. It was about all of those, those, those values that are, are very different from God's values. It was an extremely racist home, and actually it was an extremely racist home against Moses in both Moses' gender, age, and ethnicity. It was entirely a hostile environment for a boy of his age uh, with, his, with his ethnicity in that home. The, the, the patriarch of the home that he's raised in is the one who has issued the decree that all the Moseses, like peoples, in gender and race, are, are to be killed. That's the home he was raised in. And we think, well, you know, he was, they were rich and, and, and they had, you know, they had all the, and they had all the education, so it must have been okay. Moses' skin color was more yellow than everybody else's in, in his household. He, he was just the wrong gender and, and, and race for that family. It was his step-grandfather who issued the decree to kill all the babies. It was his step-father who was also a part of that same, same scheme of killing all the Moseses. And that whole generation, that whole generation of boys. Is that how you would want your child to be raised if you, if you couldn't raise it yourself? In that kind of an environment? A 
pagan, extremely racist home against your child? I mean, yeah. Think, think about that. that is, that's part of Moses' story, and, and it's great that we can think of some of the positives of his story, but in the early years, he is raised in a very toxic environment, and yet, and yet, God was with Moses. And yet, God was with Moses through those early years, and eventually, let, God led him into his, his destiny. He led him out of his background and into God's future for him, and the same can be true with you. As you let God lead you. As you let God lead you forward. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want to talk about the birth of Moses and the earliest years of Moses. Last week I started with reading through the Bible. And then I talked about Egyptian history and the archaeology there. And then I went back to the Bible. Today what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start off with the Egyptian backstory, picking up where we left off last week. And then we're going to go into, and then see how it flows into the Bible story. The information that I'm going to share today, there's really only four names I want you to remember. And I'll, I'll flag you when it's a name that I want you to remember. And actually, you don't even remember, need to remember the name, but just understand it doesn't matter. Okay, Artapanis, that's, that's name number one. Artapanis is the source material for the information that I'm about to share. Who is Artapanis? Artapanis is living at about 300 B.C., he is a, catch this, a Jewish historian of Persian background living in Alexandria, Egypt. That's Artapanis. A Jewish historian, Persian background, living in Alexandria, Egypt. And, and basically what happened was is... Um, Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great, he had taken over the, the known world, and then he dies in 323 B.C. in Babylon. After he dies, his generals uh, split kind of up the, of the, the conquered area, and they take different bits of it. Well, the Ptolemies, Ptolemies, they, they get Egypt, and they take over Egypt. And so in the, in the lower 300s, after Alexander dies, they go to Egypt, and they're looking around, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And there's a lot of Jewish people in Egypt at that time, in the, at the, at the, around the 300 mark. Why are there a lot of people, Jewish people, in, in Egypt at that time? Well, do you remember at the end of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah in the Bible, what had happened was, is that Nebuchadnezzar came in, and, they, and he took a lot of the people, all the people, he either killed them all, or he took some to Babylon, but there was a remnant left over. Well, at the end of Jeremiah, we discovered that that final remnant who was remaining in the land, they fled, and they fled to Egypt, and they never came back. And so there was a huge population for the last several hundred years in Egypt, in Alexandria, and throughout Egypt. There's different pockets, and so they're, they're so the, anyways, the Ptolemies, they, they look around, there's a lot of Jewish people, and so they get Artapanus, Artapanus, one of our four names, they get Artapanus to write out what is the Jewish history of What's the history of the Jews specifically in Egypt? What's, what's their story? And so, in the, using all the resources of the great library in Alexandria, the famous library in Alexandria, Egypt, and having access to all the records, he writes out the history of the Jewish people, and, and he writes it all out. This, this guy with Persian background uh, employed by the, the government. And so he, he writes it out. Now, sadly, his, his work, uh, his seminal work, which is, which is kind of the, the background, the most resourced 
book ever, it, it burns in the, in the library when, the, when Alexandria burns and the library burns. But it was so quoted, and there's lots of quotes of him in, in different works and, and summaries of his, of his works in different, by different authors. He was kind of like the main historian when it came to this topic. And so you find ch different church fathers like Clement of Alexandria in his book, um, uh, Stromata, and Eusebius of, of Caesarea in his book, like having big quotes of this guy's work. And so a lot of it has been preserved. One of those fragments from Art of Panis tells us that Moses' step-grandfather, his step-grandfather was Pengenu. Now that's, that's another name, Pengenu. Pengenu. That's what I want you to remember. Technically, in that, he was called by his Greek name because remember, this document is being written to the Ptolemies who are Greek-speaking, Alexander the Great. And so they use his Greek name, uh, Palmentholes, but it's, but it's referring to this guy with the, the Egyptian name, Pengenu. Again, we talked about this different names thing last week, and we talked about how people in different languages have different names, like Esther in the Bible, that's her Persian name. Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Also, like, for instance, Jesus, right? We call him Jesus. Nobody called Jesus Jesus. They called him, they called him Jesus. Jesus, that was his Greek, his Greek name, or, um, you know, or maybe they were using a, a different, a different, like, Aramaic name or things like that. But we, we are, we're used to this idea of people being called something slightly different in different languages. And so you see that also with this, this historical record. So um, Pengenu, the, the, the pharaoh, the, the step-grandfather of Moses, it was his daughter, Princess Merit. And that's another, that's the third name. Uh, Artapanus, Pengenu, and then Princess Merit. And Merit, or Maris, is the Greek version, but Merit, she is the one, says Artapanus, that drew Moses out of the Nile River and adopted him. He's not the only one that writes about this. Uh, Josephus also writes the same story. He writes the same, same uh, confirms this in his writings. So what we learn from Artapanis and his preserved writings, at this moment, the country is divided when, about the time where Moses is born. There is the strong southern kingdom out of Luxor, which we talked about last week with its, its mighty pharaohs. And then there's a small and just about over with uh, king, kingdom in the north that's being run out of Avaris, which is our city that we're going to be talking about. And that's where the palace of where Merit lives and where Pengenu lives. And they're, they're, he's the pharaoh of kind of that northern bit. But his power is pretty much done uh, at, at about this point. And most of the commands are now coming out of Luxor. In fact, uh, Pengenu is the final pharaoh of that little northern kingdom based out of, of Avaris. Okay? So it's whilst this, in this situation here, when Pengenu is, is ruler of the north and no doubt pr pressured. This is going on all across Egypt, um, including the mighty kings of Luxor, that he, Pengenu, would have issued the decree that we read in the Bible connected to the murdering of all the Jewish baby boys. It's Pengenu that made that decree. Again, this is Merit's father. Right? This is Merit's father. She's issuing the decree and and we're going to find out in a little bit that Merit's husband was the king in the south issuing the same degree, decree, all right? So, so Moses is, is adopted into this family with huge amounts of negative, that is so understated, it's, I, shouldn't have, I should have said it a lot stronger, highly hostile, 
highly hostile um, views towards Jewish, ba Jewish baby boys. Her, her father, Merit's father, is issuing the decree. Her future husband is issuing the same decree. So Artapanus, he tells us about this, and, and he says also that the pharaoh who's ruling the south, the southern bit of the kingdom, that he, his name is Kenefere, and that's the fourth guy that we need to remember. Kenefere, okay? So he, here's, a, here's a statue of him. This is in the Louvre in Paris. Sadly, you can't visit it. I mean, then you'd have the 14-day quarantine on your return and all that kind of stuff. I don't even know if the Louvre is open, but that's Kenefere. And Kenefere is, is the... Um, the, the mighty pharaoh to the south, and he is the one who eventually marries Merit. And when he marries Merit, that sets up a chain reaction of events so that he is, again, the first pharaoh in charge of all of Egypt again. It's all get reunited under this guy. And this guy becomes Moses' adopted father, his adopted father. It's, and it's in his, or I guess, adopted stepfather, I guess, in, the, in this situation. Kenefere is very easy to identify in Egyptian history. He's the only pharaoh with this name. He, he's the only one. So, so we, we know who he, is, who he is here. Okay, so um, the, the American Egyptologist James Henry Brusted regarded Kenefere as the most powerful of all the 13th, uh, 13th uh, dynasty pharaohs. And that's because there is massive statues of him all over Egypt. He, uh, he's, he's vain. It's, it's like if there was Instagram, but you made statues, uh, this is the guy, right? And so he's got selfies all over. Here's two more down in, in Luxor. Uh, a double selfie. Here, here's me and me. Right, that, that sort of a thing. Uh, this is in Luxor where the power stuff is down in the south. But he, he, has, he has statues all the way down into, uh, into Sudan, like, like everywhere. He's, he, was a, he was a very powerful pharaoh. How do you know if you're a powerful pharaoh? Statues everywhere, right? Selfies everywhere. Okay, just to clarify though a bit, when Moses was adopted by Merit, when, when he was adopted by Merit, she wasn't married yet. She wasn't married yet. She was still just the oldest daughter of the pharaoh of the north, Pengenu, at the time. It wasn't until Moses is about 10 years old, actually, that, that she marries to, uh, to Kenefere. And from then on, then Moses is raised as the oldest son out of four known sons of Kenefere. And, and in, in his household in that reunited Egypt. Now, we don't know how long Kenefere's reign lasted. Um, I don't think, I mean, maybe you remember, there's a really shredded document that I showed you last week called the Royal Canon of Turin that has all the king's lists in it. Well, the, the bit that says how long Kenefere's reign lasted is missing, and that doesn't, that doesn't surprise us. There's a lot missing from that list. And, but it seems to be several decades because of how many statues and, and how big of a deal that he was in the country. Okay. Anything else I want to say details-wise before I get to the Bible? Oh. Map. Here's a map. Here's a map. So uh, in the years leading up to, uh, to Kenefere's marriage, while Pengenu is still king, uh, the clan chiefs or the tribe chiefs of the, the Jewish tribes, like, you know, the Levites and the Judahites and the Simeon, Lelonians, all those guys, they, they get uh, ousted from their big family kind of mansion-y kind of places, which were located where Joseph's palace was in Avaris. Again, if, if, if you didn't see last week, you can go catch up on YouTube. But Joseph's palace is right there in Avaris. We know that. We know that's also the same place where Jacob's house was. We know from the ruins and all that kind of stuff. 
So also Joseph's, Jacob's brothers lived all around that same complex there. And, but, the, but in Pingenu's reign, they all got ousted out of their homes and they got shipped to the east, right by the river out there. And they lived in just squalor, right? I mean, it, it was so tight, it was so cramped. If somebody died, they would have to bury them under the floorboards of their house. Like it was just awful conditions. And, and that is most likely the location where Moses would have been born out in that bit on, to the east over there. The other possible location is kind of near the E on Esbit, like just to the east of the palace. Um, while we're looking at the map where it says the 12th Dynasty Royal Palace, that is where Maris lives and Pingenu live. That's, that's the, where they're ruling from in, in the city of Avaris here, also known as Ramses. Okay, uh, now there's, there's more that I'm going to say about Egypt potentially, but I want to get to the Bible version now that we've got these names. Now that we've got Moses' uh, grandfather's name, Pajenu, uh, the, the Merit who brought her out of, him out of the river, and then uh, Kenneth Ferry who is ultimately going to become Moses' stepfather. Here's, here's where we pick up from last week in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, it says, the king of Egypt, uh, that's that's Pengenu, said to the Hebrew midwives, the first, whose name was Shifra, the second, whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him, but if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt has told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and, and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The Hebrew midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, and uh, he gave them families, uh, he gave them families. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Okay, notice we're not talking about Moses yet. And, and actually, this, this bit of the story doesn't actually talk about Moses at all. It's kind of an extra bit. This is a, an extra bit. But there's something that God and Moses wanted to highlight here. He wanted to lift up these two women of faith, the, these two midwives. Uh, and, and, and he wanted to show, like, this is what it looks like to follow God boldly. These women, they didn't care if they lost their lives. They didn't care if they lost their jobs. They, they heard Pharaoh's command, and they were like, no, we are not going to obey. We're not going to follow. And, and actually, when they're challenged on it, they, they, they lie. They lie a bit about that, which is a little bit theologically um, interesting. But they, 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 they lie, and they disobey, and God blesses them. Again, now, this is complicated, and this, and this is not something I'm encouraging you to imitate, <laughs> uh, but, but here they, 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 they resist the government, they, they resist the leadership of the government, and then they lie. The Bible is clear that lying is a sin. Um, if you are thinking, I would like to apply this uh, towards my government or lying, you're probably not going to be hitting it the right way. I'm just going to throw that out there, especially in Scotland and with our, um, our leadership today. So don't overapply this, but still, these women are remembered and they're praised as godly women, and this bit could have just been left out. There's, there's not really a need for this, because this is just like some backstory before we get to the crisis moment. Ultimately, during this time, the command has gone out, but the boys are not being killed. 
None of the boys are being killed. They're being saved. And it's irritating Pharaoh. And he's like, what is going on? So there's, there's some grace here. But then we get to verse 22. And in verse 22 it says, Pharaoh then, after the midwives were you know, not getting to these vigorous women, <laughs> uh, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, all his people, all his people. He commanded all his people, you must, this is from the Pharaoh, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. You must do this. Again, so at first they're not being killed by the Hebrew midwives, but now every Egyptian in the nation has been commanded by the Pharaoh to, to do this and to throw the, the, the baby boys in. Let me, let me show you some charts from the archaeology of Avaris. So the Austrians have been excavating Avaris for a long time, and they have found so many baby graves in, in, in tiny graves of this, from this massacre here in Egypt. And they, so they've been unearthed. The normal infant grave population in a, in a place like this is 25%. That's 25 mortality in the first year of life. That's, that's normal. But here in Avaris, at, at this moment of time, the, the infant grave mortality hits 65%. Which is exactly what you would be expecting when it comes to the Bible. And how do I say that? Well, because if a natural, if a natural, the normal is 25% mortality. Let's say you assume half of those are women and half of those are men. Uh, baby girls, baby boys. So that's 12 and a half baby girls are just going to have that natural um, mortality rate. And then all the boys. If you say all the boys is half, of half the babies born. I don't think it quite works like that. But let's just say. Then you've got... 50% all the baby boys to be killed, plus the normal 12.5% of the baby girls that are just going to, uh, the normal mortality rate, that gets you to 62.5%. And, and if, just with somewhere around there. And, and here, and the archaeology says 65% at this moment, all under the age of one, are, are being massacred and, or, or dying or being buried. You know, they're being buried. It's exactly what you'd expect from the Bible. And you know it has, it's impacting the guys because when you're looking at the adult grave populations, again, I don't know how long this window of massacre was taking place, but when you look at the adult grave populations, there's a big disparity between the amount of women who live to adulthood versus the amount of men who live to adulthood at this time. It's just astonishing how, how much it, the, the, the dirt and the ground and the graves in the ground are, are showing exactly that this, what the Bible is saying is happening, really was happening. And it was awful. And it was awful. So there's a massacre going on now in Egypt. What does the next, what does the next verse say? It says, now, in this context, now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. And we know their names from Exodus, Exodus 2.20. His name was Amram. Her name was Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed. Names you don't hear enough anymore. Uh, but anyways, so you've got these two, these, uh, these two people. They get married. Verse 2, the woman, Jochebed, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful or good, when she saw, saw, saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Again, they're in these tightly packed quarters, pretty safe in that area because it's just Jewish people. And the Jewish people are not murdering the babies. We've, we've established that. It's only the Egyptians. And so she's, she's hiding him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a, a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. 
She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance, Miriam, and in order to see what would happen to him. By the way, we know that Moses has an older brother, Aaron, and an older sister, Miriam. And so we know that the whole slaughtering of the babies wasn't taking place in, at Aaron's time, who's just a, a few years older. Or he was born during the era when the Hebrew midwives were not doing what Pharaoh said. So, so there's a little bit of a time window there where this is happening. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to, to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Okay, so a map. Back to our map. Back to our map. You can put that back on the screen. So, so this is, I just added the arrow showing that's the flow of the river, just flowing that direction. And so you have Moses in an ark, same word as Noah's ark, but in this, in this papyrus basket ark thing. And he's laid into a basket and he's stuck in the Pelusic Nile bed, either down by the red thing or by, just kind of by the E, up above the E there. He's put in those places. In a place that looks like this. Here's a picture of the bank of the Nile there. Uh, yeah, so kind of just put in the, in the water there. And then row, row, row your boat, but not rowing. And I can't sing because I'm not behind the shield. And so uh, he's kind of floating down there until he kind of settles in the reeds in one of the most dangerous places that he could possibly be in this location uh, by in the, near the bathing area of the palace. Now the palace is reconstructed, but that, that's the water. That's right at the right location where the, where the palace is and, and the, the bathing area there where Merit, the princess, is with her people. Now... Even though Merit knew at that moment exactly what was going on here, and she calls it out, this is a Hebrew boy. She, she knows that. Uh, and, you know, she is genetically very distant, but like still connected to uh, Joseph's descendants. She decides, even though she knows it's a Hebrew boy, to adopt the baby on the spot. Now, I'm going to say this one thing that, that, I, that I hope that you grasp the significance of. She, Merit, she may have been the only person in all of Egypt who could have gotten away with directly defying the Pharaoh, who is her father's orders, to kill every baby boy, every Jewish baby boy. I'm just going to say that again because it's very significant. She may have been the only person in all of Egypt who could have gotten away with directly defying her father, the Pharaoh's orders to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. I mean, it, it's probably just one of those like dads and daughters things, right? Like, ah, uh, you want to keep, uh, okay, you want to keep, ah, uh, daughters, okay, uh, what can I say, right? Uh, that's, you know, dads and daughters, am I right? Uh, I actually wrote a song uh, this morning when I was getting ready connected to this this, this moment, and it was kind of to the tune of reindeers are better than people, but I can't sing the song right now. Um, sorry, guys. Anyways, <sighs> Nicola, maybe someday, maybe someday. Uh, now, let's just think, though, about how clearly, clearly God's invisible hand is at work here in this story. There's no obvious miracle here at this moment. It's all God's hidden hand of providence. 
But clearly, when you read the story, God is at work. He is at work in this moment. He has a purpose for Moses. He has a purpose for Moses and his future. And, and, and God is clearly at work, but it doesn't say that in the Bible that God is at work. It just describes the story, and we're supposed to just see and know that this is God at work. And, and it, just like it's hard to see exactly, uh, see the words, God is at work here in this story. We don't see those words. It's also hard to see it in our own lives. But the truth is, just like God is at work in this scenario, so God is at work in your lives and, and in your story as well. And the question is, can you see it? Can you see how God is at work in your life? Because you've been trained not to. You, you've, you've been trained to not see and recognize God's hidden hand of providence in your life. In fact, to not identify it unless there's absolutely no other explanation. And even if the phrase luck or that was lucky, if that doesn't work, then you can get to the God card. You've been trained to push off this sense, this identifying of God's work in your life with, with, extreme, with an extreme uh, prejudice in that. It's weird to connect in our generation anything that's going on in our lives to God if there's any other explanation. But the thing is, God is way more at work in your life than you even perceive. God is way more at work in your life than you even perceive. Back to Moses here. Look, look at the hidden hand of God in these verses. So there's the basket, and it happens to, this ark, it happens to drift right to the royal bathing area. Just so happens. Okay? If any other Egyptian, it would have stopped at any other Egyptian's house, they know what to do. Throw the baby in. That's it. That should have been a death sentence, though, by the way, stopping at the, the palace, because any Egyptian at the palace, and they're Egyptians or slaves, they're going to they're gonna throw the, the baby into the Nile as commanded by the Pharaoh. But it just so happens that the only person who probably could get away with, with uh, saving this baby just so happened to be there and discover this ark, this basket. The, the princess, uh, the princess Merit. She's the only one with the power to be able to do this. And not only does she find the baby, she has a positive emotional response to discovering him. And it says in the Bible, she felt sorry for him. It's amazing how God's hidden hand of providence so much plays off of how people respond to you even. And how he can make someone um, compassionate towards your situation. Or, or, or desiring to help you in your, in your context. It, it, it's in those subtle ways that God is very active in, in, in our world today. And maybe you think that God isn't very active. Or maybe you feel like, you, I don't even know where God is. Maybe you're just feeling like God is, you're clueless when it comes to God and, and his connection with your life. I would say that you're probably just blind to, to his work. God is every microsecond active in our world today. But he can be so subtle. He can be so subtle that if you're not paying attention, you, you cannot realize that what just happened there was him. God's better to you than you realize. God's better to you than you realize, and he's helping you more frequently than you even perceive. In fact, we're going to truth type to wake everybody up because we have a lot of details right now. Um, so we're going to truth type or we're going to truth talk. Now, if you're online, then you're going to be typing the words, God is better to me than I realize. That is a, a powerful truth, and you're going to own that. In fact, th put it in caps locks even. Like, God is better to me than I realize. And in the room, we're going to say the same thing, but we're not going to just mumble it or moan it like I've heard so many times today. 
we're going to preach it at me, right? And you better have that one arm preaching finger, right, going, oh, God, or, or a full hand. God is, and we're going to say together, God is better to me than I realize, all right? Let's going to do this. Ready? Truth talking. Three, two, one. You guys, man, I'm persuaded. You are owning that. What a, what a truth. Let's just try it one more time. Just for my heart. Uh, my heart, okay, okay, let's think about this. Okay, that was, that was a three out of ten. Uh, we, we can probably, let, let's get to a five, all right, uh, or more, all right? God is better to me than I realize. Three, two, one. God is better to me than I realize. Yes, and we're also going to truth talk and truth type. God helps me more frequently than I notice. And if you're trying to type that uh, and your spell check isn't working on the online chat, frequently is spelled F-R-E-Q-U-E-N-T-L-Y. And yes, I had to read it from my notes because I'm not good at spelling either. So, God, so the thing is, God helps me more frequently than I notice. You guys ready to preach it at me right now? All right, three, two, one. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll give you the phrase again because I think we lost it. God helps me more frequently than I notice. God helps me more frequently than I notice, all right? Three, two, one. Okay, good. That was, that was a solid three. Okay, God helps me more frequently than I notice. But those are solid truths. Those are powerful, powerful truths, and I want you to, to grasp onto those. But let's keep reading here, because uh, we're not done with this story. Then, then, verse 7, then his sister, Miriam, then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, Merit, uh, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? So go, Pharaoh's daughter told him. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Again, in English, we read Moses. Nobody called him Moses. His, his Hebrew name would have been Moshe, and his Egyptian name would have been Mio. Mio, like Mio, the cat sound, right? Moshe and, and, and Mio. Now, here, here's a solid maybe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rate this at about a 70 to 75%. So what you see on the screen is um, Egyptian hieroglyphics from the Wadi Hamamat. Now, um, I am not an expert in hieroglyphics, meaning that looks to me the same as it does to you. I do not know uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. But, and there are heaps of hieroglyphics in the Wadi Hamamat from all different dynasties uh, throughout Egypt history. There's lots of records of stuff going on. I have worked as hard as I can to identify and to see if this is actually the right one. Is it? I really hope so. It may not be, but I think it is. But but. We're going to go from there. It, it may not be exactly right. But this is in the Wadi Hamamat. Professor Kim Reiholt, in his major work on this time period of kind of the Moses and uh, time period here, he believes that, a, that the prince named Sebekatep Mio, Mio, the Moses, Moses or Moshe, Sebekatep Mio is the prince Sebekatep recorded on this stella or the right stella, whatever it is, uh, the, the, the right stella. And he is there, Prince Sebekatep Mio, with his father, Canafere. Now, again, both of their full names would be, the full name of Canafere is Sebekatep IV Canafere, and then Moses would have been Sebekatep Mio. 
Sebekatep Meal, or Prince Sebekatep Meal, as in his oldest son. And, and at this moment, when this is being written, there is high praise for this Meal, for this Moses person. And, and, and again, this Moses person is adopted about 10 years before Merit married Kenneferi, which definitely means that Moses is the oldest of all Kenneferi's sons. We know that he had four of them. Uh, and so according to the royal canon of Turin, the, the age document that was kind of falling apart, what we do know is that this favored son who's carved here on the oldest and as like the praised one here on this Stella doesn't actually become the next pharaoh, surprisingly enough. You would expect from this that he becomes the next pharaoh, but we know he doesn't. Instead, a different son becomes the next pharaoh, Merotepre, Sebekotep V. Uh, Merotepre becomes the next pharaoh. And so something happened between the carving of this stella when, when Moses is kind of, or Mio is kind of a big deal to, to and, and, you know, what could have happened? I don't know. Did Mio run away? I don't know what's going on. Anyways, we'll find out what happens. In, in these verses, though, again, the ones that we read previously, again, that 75%, 70, 75% kind of probability rate could be just for fun. Anyways, back to the Bible. These verses, again, we see the hidden hand of God uh, allowing Moses' mother, Jochebed, to transition from an excruciating grief, right? Just realizing she can't hide this, her baby son anymore. Putting him in a basket, almost to certain death. She's surrounded by every baby boy being slaughtered in, in, in Avaris, and the baby graves everywhere in, in this moment here. Placing him in, in the river, and she goes from that to being paid to nurse him and to take care of him as a baby by the one person, maybe in all the nation, who could have saved his life, Princess Merit. And I'm just like, wow, what a story, right? What a powerful story. And, and in all this story, the only thing that the Bible says that God did, actually, that it says that God did this, the only thing it said was that he blessed the Hebrew midwives. That's all it says when it comes to what is God's claim is there. Everything else we just look at and we marvel at the hidden, but obvious, but unstated, but clearly true work of God in rescuing Moses in, in this moment, almost facing almost certain death at age three months. You can see God's hand in Moses' story, but can you see God's hand in your story? Can you see God's hidden hand in your story? Can you see God's hand in your upbringing? In your upbringing. And sure, there are those who are raised in wonderful Christian homes who know nothing of poverty or abuse or, or anything like that. But there are many, many others who have been raised in environments where they saw and experienced a lot of evil, a lot of awful. Most people have experienced a bit of, of mixture of, of it all, but there's a lot of people who have experienced a lot of evil in their growing up years. And, and if your story has, has that mix of evil and awful, or maybe a lot of evil and awful, sometimes we can get so transfixed with the awful that we can't see any deeper because of the pain, and we can't see where the good God was in this moment because the pain and the awfulness are so in, in our face. But I want you to know, whatever your story, whatever your situation, that God was there. God was there. He was there with you when you were young. He has been with you all your life. He was there with you in your pain. He was there with you in the awful. He was there with you in the abuse. He was there with you in the trauma. There was not a horrific moment of your life that God has not been there with you. 
In fact, let's just truth type this or truth say this. God was there. Did you just type that online? God was there in the room. God was there. Three, two, one. Yeah, with conviction. We're going to try that one more time because that was awful. Okay, with conviction. When you're thinking about your life, God was there. Three, two, one. Yeah, God was there. Sometimes it's very hard to believe, though, because of what you experienced and what you went through. And you, you know what I believe? I believe that God, God even intervened in your past in ways that you don't even know. I, I've wondered several times if God spared my life at a few different junctures along the way, and I didn't even know it, or spared me from different evil, horrific moments that I didn't even know, but the, He just intervened, and so I don't have to even know that and to the glory of God, to the praise of God. I, I've been spared more than I even know. I don't know your story. I don't know your whole situation, but I do know about the goodness of God, and I know how active God is in our world today. I do know that he did intervene in my life, and I'm confident that he did intervene in, in your life as well. And although he didn't, ex he didn't spare you from experiencing all the evil, he didn't spare you from even some very horrific experiences, that the truth is that God, even though he, he knew that you were going to be going through that, he has always had a plan. God has always had a plan to heal you of every bit. He has always had a plan to heal you of every bit of your, your story, of your pain, of your awfulness, and lead you into his significant future for your life. He has always had a plan for that. Moses, raised in this home, hated race, gender, age group, um, raised in, in this demon-worshiping home of the gods of Egypt, all their awful practices. But God takes Moses out of this very not ideal upbringing and uses him in an incredible way. And no matter your story, no matter your story, I know that God can do the same with you if you will trust him. And if you will walk in his way, what is the way forward to, to walk from the past to the future? Four, four steps. Number one, you give your life to Jesus. You give your life to Jesus where there's forgiveness for you and where there's healing for you. You give your life to the King of Kings, to Jesus. Secondly, you forgive. You forgive everyone, everything. And you go through that heart healing work as long as it takes. You forgive everyone of everything. Step three, you invite the Holy Spirit to come and keep bringing healing to your wounded heart, to your, to your shattered heart, to your, to your broken places inside. And you ask the Holy Spirit to heal you there. Step four, you commit your future to, to following the leadings of God, no matter the ask, no matter the cost. Now the first three are, are God's path for the healing of your past, and the fourth one is about God's leading, trusting God's leading towards, towards your future and his ideal future for you. Can you see God's hand in your story? He's there. In fact, he's all over your story. And now Jesus has a good plan to deal with all of that pain, and he has an even better plan for your future. Here's the challenge for you today. The challenge is this. I want you to identify the people from your growing up years, you need to forgive or to forgive again. To forgive or to forgive again, then work through the process of forgiving them all. Work through the process of forgiving them all with Jesus in prayer. Work through the process of forgiving them all with Jesus in prayer. That's the way. That's the way towards your, your future, your healed future. Let's give this a try. Why don't you go ahead and close your eyes with me wherever you're at in, in this room or, 
or wherever you're at, unless you're driving. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to picture Jesus. And I want you, to, and, and there's probably a name uh, of somebody maybe who's wounded you that's been in your mind as I've been talking today. Or maybe a few people, some names there. And I want you to take those names and I want you to re- stretch them out to Jesus. Like in offering those names to Jesus. Those people that have hurt you. I want you to hold them there. I want you to hold them out in front of you to Jesus. And I want you to say, Jesus, these people have hurt me. They have, they have been evil to me. They've treated me horrifically. They've caused me a lot of pain and shame and, and trauma and whatever it might be. I, th- th- these people have hurt me. Jesus, would you take these, this from me? Would you take this from me? And right now, I choose to give them to you and what's happened. I choose to give this to you. And I choose to forgive them in Jesus' name. Now, I know that might have been a real big step for some of you right now. But that's the, that's the plan. You're, you're holding them out in front of Jesus. And then you're trying to release them to him. And you're saying, I forgive them. I forgive them. I forgive them. And Jesus, I want you to take this. And then your prayer is, then Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and fill my broken heart, my wounded heart, my aching heart, my shredded heart, whatever the word is there. Holy Spirit, come and, and, and heal my heart. Now maybe that's, that, that's going to be a, prayers, a prayer situation that you're going to be praying through for the next era here. Picturing Jesus, holding out those people, choosing to forgive them and battling through that. But maybe some of you are at this point where you're like, I just need to give my life to Jesus. I need to start step one. And if that's you, I encourage you to to pray a prayer like this. Jesus, uh, I need you. I need your help. I need your healing. Put me back together again. I I feel like I'm coming apart on the inside. I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling wounded. And Jesus, I need your healing. I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your forgiveness. Jesus, forgive me. I now dedicate the entirety of my life to you, to follow you, to follow your path for my life, to follow your, your calling for me. And that includes forgiving everyone of everything. But God, I, I dedicate my life to you. Yeah. yeah. Fill me with your spirit. My life now belongs to you in Jesus' name.